0: Ladies and gentlemen, a warm welcome from Germany to all of you. Good morning again. My name is uh, Kai-Olaf Lang, and I am delighted to chair this highly relevant panel, which the organizers have titled Europe after a stress test for democracy. I work for the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. Uh, We all know that uh, developments of the last years or even decades have increasingly put strain on democracy in European countries. They have put strain on institutions, on democratic processes and on the political culture. And of course, now the pandemic and the attempt to contain the spread of the virus have brought additional limitations to democracy. I think there is an increasing feeling among most of us that the vulnerability of democracy is increasing. And we all know lots of the problems when it comes to the functioning of democracy in European states. But I think if we look around, the issues we will talk about today Can be grouped to three broad developments. I think, in European, but in a broader way also in Western democracies, we see first a growing contestation of existing, of the existing so-called political mainstream, and we see an existing and an increasing tendency towards confrontation. And I think, second, what we can observe is a growing limitation of. Democracy, Because uh, we have processes from outside, we have globalization, we have the power of economy, which restricts the freedom of democracy. Think about the most recent uh, conflicts with uh, Facebook and the Australian government. So the role of big tech, which can of course have a detrimental impact on Uh, on democracy and of course there is an external dimension to the functioning of democracy so we have uh, alternatives and in some cases very successful in economic terms alternatives to western European democracy and this of course also has an impact on the way we do politics here in the European Union so uh, when we are asking are we amidst, are we after a stress test for democracy? My first uh, thought would be, maybe we're still amidst this uh, stress test and maybe it's more than just a stress test, maybe democracy in the European Union is in a way of crisis or at least in a process of deep adaptation. Now, these are very big and and, and complicated questions and to give us uh, thoughts and and maybe also hints how to tackle these challenges, we have four brilliant panelists. And um, our panelists, they cover the whole geographic range of the European Union, so we're going to have views from the southwestern flank of the EU, from the northeastern part, and of course from the very center of of the Union. And our speakers, they unite political expertise and the knowledge of, of research. So, in a way, they're predestined for delivering deep insights into uh, the state of democracy in the European Union and the challenges ahead. And I think what helps us is that we have speakers who can cover the different, um, so to say, um, levels of the EU, because the EU is a multi-level system, so we will have a prospectus from the national level and insights on domestic developments, as well as some concerning the EU in total. Our reputable panelists are Madame Vita Anda Teranda, she is the Chair of the European Affairs Committee of the Parliament of the Republic of Latvia. Then we have Mr. Valdis Zattlers, who was the President of the Republic of Latvia. Professor Johannes Pollack is the Rector of the Webster Vienna Private University and at the same time, Chairman of the Board of Directors of the Berlin-based Institute for European Politics. And Sandra Diaz-Fernandes, who is a Professor at the University of Minho in Portugal. Allow me a brief brief technical remark, you might already uh, have heard that in the first panel. Um, So, as in the previous round, there are two ways for the audience to actively take part in the discussion. Uh, By using the raise hand function in the Zoom platform, or that's the second possibility to uh, use the Slido platform where you can write your questions and comments. I repeat the code for the Slido platform, it is hashtag 92396. With this, I would like to open our discussion. And the first voice we will hear is uh, Madame uh, Terauda, the chair of the European Affairs Committee of the SEMA. And I would ask you uh, a sort of double question to make the debate a little bit uh, more palpable at the very beginning. Where would you see, looking uh, to, to, to Latvia, the most urgent problems and challenges for democracy in, in your country. Uh, looking to the to the EU level, uh, has the European Union, have EU policies, uh, particularly if you bear in mind the, the huge crisis of the last decade, have they helped to strengthen democracy? Or have they, in a way, unintendedly contributed to, to the erosion of democracy, be it in Latvia or, or elsewhere? Madam Chair, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you. And um, indeed, the challenges for democracy in the EU and its member states uh, are alive and well. I think we are still square in the middle of this stress test for democracy. Um, I wanted to talk about two of the issues that I think are um, extremely pertinent to our future as a democracy. Um, The first is uh, polarization and the decline of democratic discourse. I think all over the EU and here, we have seen the rise of political parties that have tapped into discontent, uh, that gain power by fueling polarizing views, uh, espousing positions that have little possibility for actual implementation. Um, And this uh, has destabilized and polarized many of our political landscapes including ours here in latvia Uh, and this polarization it's also uh, in society we've seen a decline in the democratic discourse and for me democracy is very much about participation and that's the ability to discuss among many and arrive at a consensus supported by most now our political participation takes place online less and less in real life in real conversations like the ones we're having today And I think it's uh, very important for us to take a look at what is the state of this virtual public square that our democracy lives in now. And unfortunately, it's one that amplifies extreme views. It's one that leads individuals on a path that is ever narrower and narrower and ever more polarized. And when we are in that virtual space, it's extremely difficult to even distinguish who is real and who is fictional. And this makes us very vulnerable to manipulations. This broad discussion aiming at consensus that we need for democracy is, in fact, contrary to the internal logic of the social networks that we use. Alarms are sounding about this virtual space, uh, not only in Europe, but globally. Um, And it is perceived, uh, I think, finally, as a potential threat to democracy. Because the virtual, it becomes real. It's people's views reflected in opinion polls that we as politicians all follow. Uh, it comes through in the voting booths and in extreme cases on the streets. Um, I think this is a challenge that, uh, we cannot address at a member state level. This is truly a European challenge. Um, and Europe is taking a few steps in this direction. The digital services act and the discussions around that is one step, but it will definitely, I believe, take more. Um, Europe should be a rule maker in this area. Uh, even more so, it should cooperate with the United States in redesigning these virtual public spaces. Because I think in um, in the world, we have a few pillars of democracy that are still here in Europe and that are in the United States. And we need together to think about how to redesign our public spaces. Um, this week, Anne Applebaum and Peter Pomerantsev in a recent article outlined how this could happen. Um, And they posit uh, a radical rethinking of regulations, of who sets the parameters of freedom of expression, what is the legitimacy and accountability in the system, and also a reassessment of how each individual should be able to take control not only of their own data, but to have a say in the algorithms that fashion their view of the world. Um, We are taking steps in the right direction, but I believe we need to move faster and we need to move more concertedly with other big actors in the globe, because this is truly a redesign. Uh, The second challenge to democracy in the European Union that I wanted to mention is a breakdown of consensus over what constitutes rule of law. Even though here in Latvia, we're not experiencing severe challenges to the rule of law that we see in other member states, divergent views on the rule of law can be seen here across the political spectrum as well. And this manifests as a desire to exert influence over the courts, a denigration of checks and balances built into our system. Yesterday's parliamentary debate bore evidence of this, with members of parliament questioning if we need a constitutional court at all, Admonishing judges for opinions contrary to political views held by some parties, even warning incoming judges not to stray from narrow legal interpretations into issues that could be deemed politically sensitive. At the European level, a breakdown of this consensus is truly a threat because it undermines trust among member states. We now have EU countries refusing to honour arrest warrants in other countries due to concerns about the rule of law. We have countries wielding vetoes over crucial European issues, such as the EU budget. We have diverging approaches among member states to external issues that are tied with our economic and security future, such as how our relationships with Russia or China to develop. The EU truly works by consensus among all of us. And this consensus heretofore has been based on the idea that even though we have a great plurality of, of opinions, we do have core values that unite, that gives us confidence that whatever decisions we get to in the end, they will reflect common values. If these common values break down, this will cripple the strength of the EU and the ability to EU, of the EU to act together. I think the rule of law issues are truly the toughest long-term issues. Uh, that the EU faces right now. We have had a decade of discussion mechanisms trying to rebuild a consensus around the rule of law. But unfortunately, it has not led to common understanding, but rather it seems to have entrenched divergent opinions. New mechanisms are now being designed, but it still remains to be seen if the EU will be able to wield them to any effect. Uh, Lastly, I wanted to end on a bit more hopeful note, uh, to talk about what the role of the EU is in Latvia. And I think, uh, despite all the problems and challenges, uh, the EU is still perceived broadly, as an extremely positive thing for Latvia. There's a broad recognition that membership in the EU has been good for Latvia's development. It gives us a solid place in a democratic community of nations. And it this in turn serves our security interests. The current pandemic has brought a renewed appreciation of the importance and value of the freedom of movement in the EU. Common vaccine procurement has been of great benefit to Latvia, despite the problems and setbacks at the EU level and problems and setbacks at the national level. Resources being made available for economic recovery are also well appreciated. So despite the democratic challenges, I think at least from the positions here in latvia there is a great will and drive to see a strong eu emerge out of the stress test of democracy thank you
0: thank you thank you madam chair for this uh thorough and sober uh, analysis um which implies i think quite a couple of important uh, not only statements um, but also um questions and i think we should come back at a later point what I would be interested in what you so aptly described as the breakup of the consensus, the polarization, the change. You talked about the uh, the decline of the democratic discourse. What is behind that? Why is that? What are the root causes? And why has this happened in the last years? Because uh, our debate would have been clearly different 20 or 30 years ago. But let's keep that in mind. And at that point, I would like to move to to President Suttler's. And I think, and that has a little bit to do with a question I just just raised. Uh, I think we should also look at the soft fundaments of democracy. And in my opinion, functioning, stable, resilient democracies, they are certainly based on trust. Uh, Not only democracies, by the way, uh, in a way, every each political system needs trust trust of citizens in institutions and in political leaders, and uh, obviously there is an increasing distrust vis-à-vis the so-called elites, and in a in a in a broader way we we even have distrust vis-à-vis politics, uh, the fatigue of politics, in many European uh, states. So how should Uh, We restore, how can politics restore trust and legitimacy? And, of course, what might be the role of the European Union for that process? Mr. President.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, uh, I will start with uh, introducing myself with a short statement. Uh, To my opinion, there are no limits to democracy. And there is no crisis in democracy. Uh, We have the process that is normal advancement and development of democracy. Because we build the democracy, democratic societies, and democratic government institutions. uh, We still are going to build them in the future for many, many years uh, until the democracy exists. And the, the, the governments always fail from inside. And I must say that the democracy also may fail from inside. And what has to be, be changed? Uh, we have to understand that the new digital era uh, opens up the, the people's opinion more widely on much larger scale, I would say, on the scale of each individual. And we, uh, ha- we have to be prepared for the complexity of the society we are facing to. And our governments have to uh, be ready to face this complexity of the society. And uh, what matters, the principles and values of democracy, matters above all. About trust, you asked me. You know, um, well, let's say trust and distrust. Uh, we usually things like like being uh, opposite to each other. But we have to understand that trust arises sometimes. Uh, independently, and the distrust arises sometimes absolutely independently, and there is a wide range of area in between them. And usually we are very radical when we say, you know, this is black and white, you know. Uh, the world is more and more colorful than just the black and white. Uh, what we see about the stress test situation, what is a stress test? It's unexpected the processes which come across uh, the societies and public institutions and uh, they have to deal with that both the public institutions and the society and if you look at the last history of eu uh, that is that was a financial crisis and we build up uh, the eu strengths much more than we, we lost and then the second was migration crisis and uh, you see that nobody talks about that today. In between there was you know, a Brexit, which was already history today. Maybe sometimes somewhere in Ireland or UK you have some, you know, still public opinions which are very controversial about this process. And now we have the, the COVID, you know, and the COVID uh, have saved uh, a, lot, a lot of our, our future. It uh, sounds a little bit you know provocative, but it is so. We are not talking anymore about the third global war and we are talking about the things we didn't talk about uh, 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 two years or three years ago, nothing to say there about, about about decades ago. Uh, but at the same time we, we see that uh, the trust is when when people you know, um, rely on, on visions, on plans, decisions, and actions on our governments. And, and sometimes they don't rely on that, and they don't trust that the government is doing the right things in the right time uh, for the sake of people. This is a rel- reality, but uh, we have to f- uh, tackle this reality. We don't have any, any other option. And uh, let's say, what would be the instruments now? There is a change of moral attitude towards what we do in politics. For the first time in the history, we we, we have decided to slow down the economy to save lives during the COVID time. This is a big change. And also this vulnerability, which we are talking about, uh, has revealed a sense of uh, independence much, much, much uh, strong, stronger sense of independence uh, and a uh, necessity for a common uh, sense of of, of uh, cooperation. Uh, and we, we understand that the transparency is, is one of the key answers uh, that uh, will help us to, to close the gap between the, the society and the elites or the government. Uh, I would say that we are living in the, the age of digitalization, and uh, there are positive things about the digitalization, like digital market, and there are also the dark sides of digitalization, like uh, it's an opportunity to spread uh, very quickly fake news, disinformation, and even uh, uh, advocate uh, violence. So, and also the business patterns of the of, uh, big tech companies uh, sometimes uh, are very questionable, do they really make profit in a moral way, and what's about the, 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 the security of individuals, that's one of the things that is very sensitive, individuals are very concerned about their privacy and about their, you know, say, uh, their security in this, this cyberspace, but uh, I would say I'm very optimistic uh, about EU. Uh, let's say in uh, the last uh, year, there was practically no critic about the EU. There was a lot of critic of the national government, because uh, the same uh, principle that there, uh, there is a role uh, and action and tools for the uh, Brussels, and there are also tools and, and action from the national governments. But I would emphasize: we have to think about the municipalities too. There are all municipalities, which is a closer. Power to the people uh, should be, you know, noticed both the national level and the EU level. So I am optimist, and I'll end up with that that uh, we should be optimists and we should be proud of EU. And uh, EU is becoming the leader of, of the new world order, if you if you like to to say that. Uh, multilateralism, common sense, consequence, facing the problems making the decisions, fulfilling and, and delivering the, the, the goals in this very, very uncertain and unpredictable world. I think we, we should go on in the same way. And don't talk too much about, you know, that there are limits about in democracy. There are no limits in democracy. Everything depends on ourselves. Thank you.
0: Now, thank you so much. We have a, a highly, a highly interesting debate already now, because what what I feel is that we have now heard two, in a way, differing assessments uh, of where we stand, and this has also implications for what we should do with it, because um, Chairman uh, Terauda said, Chairperson, uh, Chairwoman Terauda said that um, had a rather bleak and pessimistic assessment. Uh, She was talking about decline, the breakup of consensus, and the consequence of this is, according to her, that um, the EU or other actors should do more regulation, should uh, be active uh, and should uh, take a sort of um, higher profile in order to ensure democracy whereas uh, President Sattler's was more relaxed and said uh, democracy has no limits um, in a way. Uh, I think that's interesting to to discern. Um, In both cases, the question which comes to my mind is, um, and, and, and I think we should be very cautious about thinking what to do with these processes, because indeed democracy needs also contestation in a way, not of its rules, but it needs a sort of broad bandwidth of of, of options and of of questioning. Um, But of course there is also what the German constitutionalist Böckenförde once said, uh, the question of how to defend uh, democracy, because Böckenförde said in a way, and he was referring to the the German uh, situation also with the uh, Specific German experience of 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 uh, of Nazi uh, uh, of the Nazi era, he said there might be a problem that a liberal state lives by prerequisites which it cannot guarantee itself. So how do uh, European democracies, or some say liberal democracies, protect? Uh, their their preconditions. I think that's something. Should we be relaxed about that and said yes? Uh, in a way, this is a sort of uh, strengthening the processes we we observe, or is it a real threat? But uh, I would like to go hand over now to to, to Professor Polak, uh, who is uh, of course an excellent um, uh, expert on on what is going on in the EU and uh, how the EU as a polity works and. Uh, we all remember that during the years when the EU was very keen and uh, to, uh, to, do, to change also its primary uh, law, its, its treaties, up to the uh, time of the Lisbon Treaty, uh, the question of the so-called democracy deficit played an important role and how to overcome it by, by uh, related reforms. Are such reforms still a priority for the EU? Uh, So reforms on the EU level to make the EU, as a polity, more legitimate, for example. Um, And, for example, to do this in the context, uh, and uh, there was already a hint to that in the previous panel, on the upcoming conference on the future um, of Europe. Um, And, um, again, what is the role of the EU in ensuring democracy and rule of law in member states? What can the EU do, given its limited uh, competence in
3: this, in this
0: area? The floor is yours.
3: Thank you, Mr. Lang. Thank you. Dear colleagues, good morning. Um, I just did a quick calculation, and uh, it must be now 30 years that I'm attending conferences, and that makes around 250 conferences. And I cannot remember that there was any conference where we didn't discuss the democratic quality of the European Union. And every time we discussed it, we were all very pessimistic. Very pessimistic indeed, but the European Union is still there. So what you will get from me is a kind of schizophrenic view, or the same view as President Suttler has uh, described, but from the point of view of a pessimist. Uh, I have to say, Uh, as you probably can assume, I'm not in my office. Uh, I'm usually winning the reward for the best background. I'm somewhere in the countryside, not in the center of the universe. Some think Vienna uh, to be. Unfortunately, I think it's no longer at the center of the European Union politically. Please be in mind that my words are the words of a European Federalist, one of these few lost souls that are still around a true Europhile believing in the European Union, but being very disappointed with the actions and activities of some of the governments. So I have organized my, my, my brief uh, scattered remarks around four points. The first one is, of course, legitimacy and democracy. We have a, an almost perfect storm right now. You know, we have Brexit, we have COVID. So shortly after, we thought we have somehow skipped by the migration crisis and managed the sovereign debt crisis and uh, now we are undergoing this storm and the question is how we weathering it and my answer is very very uh, clear it's pathetic it's absolutely pathetic how the european union is acting but the question is who is the european union it's not the institutions in brussels it's the member states it's the cooperation between the member states and between the member states and the European institutions. How can it be that today people in Northern Italy trust the Chinese government more than the European institutions? So obviously something has gone horribly wrong uh, in the management of this crisis. So what we have failed in is managing the current pandemic and I think we continuously fail to manage it. What has this to do with the democratic deficit? I think we are dangerously close to witnessing a perceived deficit of legitimacy. If you have a continuously ineffective governance, people lose trust and therefore legitimacy. Then rule, if you paraphrase a German political scientist, William Hennis, then rule becomes futile, it becomes ridiculous, okay? Think about the traveling circus between uh, Strasbourg and and Brussels. It's difficult to explain to the young people, okay, um, that this is still uh, important. The older amongst us, we still see the European Union as a fantastic project that has brought long-lasting peace to a war-torn continent. This is no longer a story uh, you can sell, I think democracy without legitimacy, without efficient problem solution, becomes a very paternalistic and illiberal project and is limited to unfair elections, uh, I think. Hungary is just one of the examples. The second uh, item is law and democracy. It was already referred to Poland and Hungary yesterday calling upon the Court of Justice, you know, who would have thought some years ago that anyone would doubt the juxtaposition between adhering to the rules and financial support. This is something every citizen experiences every day in his or her daily life. Infringement procedures are nothing new and it's good that we have the court and it's good that we can battle such questions in court and not somewhere else. But what is disconcerting is to see the fundamental or the breaches of fundamental values of the European Union without those being sanctioned. Think about the EPP and this pathetic theater about Fides membership or not in the European People's Party. So, if you have political strategy trumping, and I use this word very considerately, trumping uh, values, we have a big, big problems and what we need i mean it sounds easy that we have to apply the rule of law but there are also legitimate differences in the understanding of what the rule of laws really what this really means and we never had a debate about it because i do think that the western members of the european union thought that this is self-explaining what the rule of law means and everyone was thinking that with britain gone it makes it easier because they have a different legal tradition but i think we still need a discussion of what this rule of law really means and, and they, an agreement on the common or joint understanding the third part is democracy and its deficit and here i'm totally with president sutlers the talk about the eu's deficit is as old as the as the european communities are that's absolutely nothing new from the very beginning the democratic quality of this monster simile. Was, was questions. Think about the Tindemans report in 1976, where he says, and I quote, to strengthen democracy through a set of institutions which have legitimacy conferred upon them by the will of our peoples. That is the idea, that's nothing new. But the question is, can the EU approximate those ideals? Is it realistic? And that's again, difficult if you think about the difference between the aspiration and the reality. 20,000 people drowning in the Mediterranean since 2014 make any claim of the European Union that it's a defender of human rights simply bogus simply ridiculous we have an extremely high youth employment not such, just since the the uh, crisis the pandemic set in now it's very long a long standing issue And it's not so much the European Union that's not tackling it, it's it's the unwillingness of the member states. And this, I think, makes the Union no longer a a target of admiration, as it may be in the older generations. But it's a target of of ridicule. It's not worth investing the time to even understand the working of the European Union. That's what, unfortunately, even nowadays I hear from, from my students. Of course there are also much less serious dimensions of this uh, gap between aspirations and, and reality. Uh, some of you may remember the council conclusions of Lisbon in the year 2000. There was the determination to become the most competitive and dynamic knowledge-based economy in the world. So as scientists, we're all very happy to hear that thinking, finally we are getting more money to do research. Of course, this was again a noble aspiration not matched my deeds and this is where i think europe really becomes in danger to to become the continent of broken hopes and and promises and if you continue not to keep your promises you have a fundamental trust and legitimacy issue you asked me Mr. So long about the democracy and its conferences you know what, this this future of europe conference i mean you all have read this non-paper from the German and the French government uh, from I think it was uh, end of 2019. And that the, there's this very innocuous sentence in it. It, it says the, the final document with recommendations should be presented to the European Council for debate and implementation. So those who have successfully hindered substantial progress in democratization because, in their view, it's equal to losing powers. They then decide behind closed doors about what the European Parliament, the elected representation of the peoples of Europe, have arrived at. This is a repetition of what we had with the Convention. This is not a founding moment of the Union. I think it's just another attempt to not tackle the issues at hand. And anyone who read the Joint Declaration that was recently signed with pomp and circumstances, you know, is wondering, what shall it achieve? It's a bit like sending a ship off with three captains, Parliament, Council and Commission, without telling them where to look for what. Some of you might have read the book by Lewis Carroll, Hunting the Schnark. That's exactly what this will be. No one knows what we're looking for, and if we found it, we don't know if we found it, because we don't know if this is what we were looking for, yeah? So, and of course, from, from a scientific point of view, I'm, I'm sorry to say, we add six citizens' assemblies, uh, this is around 1,200 people, to this uh, conference on the future of Europe, and we should draw up recommendations. I- I'm sorry, if you have any idea about what political representation means, if you have any idea about rudimentary statistics, or, or how to organize town hall meetings, Yeah, then you can probably but be pessimistic about what this should bring. From my perspective, what you need, you need a convention of members of the European Parliament, and the national parliaments, and they should be the one responsible without this unbelievable backstep in democracy and democratic achievements to deliver the results to a more or less unelected European council who then makes decision behind closed doors. This is the repetition of history, thing, and it has shown that it has failed. So all this sounds, I think, very pessimistic. It's probably more bor- born out of, of impatience. Yeah? I'm the last one not to acknowledge the amazing achievements, and President Suttler has also mentioned them of the European Union, yeah? and also Chairman Tarada has, has mentioned them. Yeah? Uh, but I think we cannot continue down uh, the same path. It would not work because we we are not at the crossroads, you know, we have been at crossroads all the time. The European Union is something that has been invented to deal with negative externalities so that states don't just pull off their burden to other states. It's, it's something about the common undertaking that we share. But the, I have a problem that we do not have this joint understanding any longer, but we are addressing the search for this joint understanding, I think, with uh, incompetent means. Thank you. Uh, Thank
0: thank you so much. We have learned that the European Union can be pathetic. I thought it is just the opposite way. It was always criticized that it's it's bloodless, it's it's technocratic and bureaucratic. Uh, But uh, but to to jump out for a second uh, from my role as the moderator, uh, there is one point which which I see it a little bit different. You said um, that this is sort of pathetic symbolic gaming, what the EU, for example, has done during the uh, pandemic. Now, uh, what about the next generation and, the, and the, the financial packages, which I think for me is indeed, I mean, that's about money and that's about uh, a country like Germany having, without substantial domestic resistance, uh, changed. Its uh, traditionally rather restrictive stance towards financial solidarity. I think that was astonishing, and that that's something which we also have to bear into account in the uh, in the assessment. But I think where I would agree very much with you, and, and that's the sort of um, we should be very cautious and modest. We should be very humble talking about uh, the, 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 the 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 deficit of democracy of the European Union. My my um, opinion is that in the european union the, the history of the european union has shown us that its above all the legitimacy is created by the output and increasingly i would dare to say that we are witnessing this also in member states so when you rightly say uh, there is not much understanding of an interest in the working of the european union of the european union who of the citizens in austria or in germany can explain or can understand how the federal system and legislation works. People are interested in what the results are and if they are results. And I think this will be the huge challenge for the European Union. But thank you very much again. And now um, over to um, Professor Fernandes. So uh, I would like to bring in the, the external dimension Um, of uh, external aspects aspects affecting the state of democracy within the community. And um, of course, uh, there is a huge debate, and especially the Baltic states know this uh, perfectly, what possible effects of destabilizing engagement of external actors, for example, from Russia uh, might be. Uh, But also, I think the rise and fall of, of, of Donald Trump uh, has had uh, ramifications for the state of democracy um, in, in in Europe, and also, I mean, the uh, the overarching debate in international affairs these 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 years is so-called great power competition. What does this mean for the stability of democracy uh, in the European Union? And as we have the occasion to have someone from Portugal, which holds the uh, council presidency. Uh, does this, in a way, reflect in, in the agenda of the Portuguese presidency? Is democracy and external challenges for democracy something where, uh, where Portugal would like to put a little emphasis? Yeah, the floor is yours, Sandra.
4: Thank you very much, Kai. Good morning to everyone. It's a pleasure to be here and to actually uh, be able to talk from another periphery from Europe. These EU-Baltics conferences are about uh, also Baltic perspective, and Portugal shares this condition of being a peripheral state, both in the European Union and NATO, but from the extreme opposite geographical setting, from the most southwestern part of Europe. And um, actually, uh, international politics have shown us that uh, besides the return of great power politics uh, competition, um, we have also the renewed significance of smallness. And we have seen particularly in Europe how small entities inside and outside the EU can affect the stability of the all of all Europe and in particular of the project of uh, of European integration and uh, in this uh, context of the presidency of Portugal, I will try to. Um, to bring the uh, outward perspective on the issue of democracy and test for democracy as the internal dimension has been uh, already um, nicely raised by, uh, by the, uh, my co-panelists. Uh, but of course, there is a connection between the inward outward perspective uh, um, on democracy And internally, it has been connected to the application of the conditionality uh, principle to the the member states of the EU. We have uh, the last December's decisions on that. And it shows how um, acutely it has been raised now uh, that um, democracy and the promotion of the rule of law has to be addressed in an internal external nexus. But actually, um, if we look at the external dimension of the issue of uh, democracy and the rule of law, and uh, answering to your first question, Kai, it's uh, clearly about the credibility of the European Union. Um, if, uh, uh, if there is a threat uh, uh, to uh, the values of the European Union that are in its DNA, uh, it's quite a, it's, it's a constitutional thing for the European Union, it also affects its foreign policy, its foreign policy objectives, because values are part of what the EU states as its way of engaging in the world. And actually, the fourth priority of the Portuguese presidency is exactly global Europe. So I will try to to dig in into the significance of global Europe today as promoted by the the presidency of of Portugal. Let's start to say that Portugal has been repeatedly and uh, with... uh, a quite, uh, recognition from the other member states, a good student of the European Union. Even amid the, the different, the several crises, and if we look at the financial crisis that has um, uh, brought Portugal to, be, to a bailout, bailout position, Portugal has always been adamant to position itself as a good student in terms as well of values, European values. And it has been a country uh, that has resisting quite interestingly to the appealing sounds of euroscepticism and populism until very recently now in portugal we have a party Chega. it's only 1.3 percent of votes for the moment it has a seat in the in the portuguese parliament since the elections of 19, of 2019 and it also got a significant 12 percent votes in the recent presidential elections we have the re-election of the, the, um, uh, the, the president since january and uh, we don't know, of course, if it can disappear in four years or it can gain 10 to 15 seats. So what I'm saying about the fact that Portugal and Portuguese population has been very supportive of uh, the European project and of its liberal values is also not uh, totally true to us today, because now we have also internally political, um, uh, a political party that clearly is a populist uh, uh, um, a right-wing uh, party, but yet the expression is not as significant. But talking about the the conference on the future of Europe, that exactly this week uh, there there was a, a, a document signed, as Johannes just underlined. Uh, I would like to to um, to just say maybe something more a bit more positive on that. Um, the the um, the focus is really on citizens instead of institutions. For the discussion so this is the re- the, uh, the methodology so democratic resilience is, is sought through the participant of uh, citizens and the agenda is open because arguably uh, the citizens will help to uh, uh, to spot the topics that need to be raised and discussed and even in this um, conference on the future of europe um, we find the core of the EU agenda, which is the promotion of European interests and values worldwide. So this is connected with the internal d- dimension. So I think this conference, even if the methodology can be criticized, is important in the current EU democratic uh, resilience agenda. So what are the fears of the European today that the Portuguese pr- presidency is acknowledging externally the USA-China competition, and the worsening of relations with the EU biggest neighbor, that is Russia. This is clearly uh, amongst the big fears externally. And we are talking about China and uh, and Russia and USA countries that USA and the Trump administration have been um, leaning towards greater authoritarianism. So this is an issue, of course, for for the EU values. And if we look at the EU member states' polls, the, the opinion polls, the expectations of an EU leadership and the EU being an agenda shaper are still very high. So there is still this demand of the EU assuming a greater uh, leading role. So in the EU, uh, in the Portuguese presidencies for, for uh, in the EU, um, sorry, in the Portuguese priorities for its presidency, there is a clear understanding that most of the challenges, challenges to the Union are external. And for Portugal, it means looking at the liberal order and multilateralism. And it's interesting to see that uh, the speech of the portuguese uh, mfa uh, uh, when preparing uh, and uh, announcing the presidency he really planned portugal really planned to promote multilateralism as a political value and a principle of the eu action hmm? and something that is in the dna of european integration but then came the pandemic hmm? and uh, even with the pandemic i think that um, there is still a hope that the eu can contribute to global leadership amid illiberal waves and the redefinition of the transatlantic agenda and also USA-China competition. For Portugal, there is a kind of instinct for multilateralism. International institutions are a cornerstone for Portugal and Portugal elites. And this is quite important to understand this and to understand that um, the Portuguese presidency is really about pushing for Europe in the global scene. But what does it mean for portugal it means pragmatism and a dialogue with powerful states on a case by states on a case by case basis and here comes the issue what does a pragmatic approach to illiberal china and russia mean and if you look at china portugal has been criticized as uh, having evolved as a special friend of china in the european union because of uh, investments of uh, China in Portugal, in strategic sectors, and it has even come to a bilateral um, pressure of the United States on Portugal recently. But for Portugal, it's quite clear that uh, China is not uh, an ally, but it's a partner. It's an indispensable partner because of interdependencies. And this is um, something that Portugal has tried to to, to bring to the presidency. And it's interesting because it has reflections on on, uh, one of the um, uh, um, agendas, which is Africa. Portugal is trying to bring back Europe to Africa through uh, uh, the uh, argument that China is there and we need to to engage again and better uh, with Africa. So to, uh, to wrap up, because my time is already over, uh, I would say that amid several crises, the bailout, migrations, COVID, Portugal sees itself as a country com- committed to deepening integration, but mostly to a bridging force. See, for instance, the negotiations of the uh, plurian- pluriannual fundings, okay? and all this under European values. However, Portugal has been changing its, port- his, uh, its position from a good student of Europe, Portugal now wants to have a voice and to be heard because Portugal can add value in this context of stress over democracy, stress over, over a lack of leadership from the European Union. Of course, on, on Russia specifically, Portugal doesn't have its own policy. It's more a follower than a, uh, than a shepherd on Russia. But still, the, the added value of Portugal is really to insist on dialogue because dialogue is unavailable and the posture is looking at the future the challenges are coming on um, in the future and it is not possible not to engage and to uh to have a dialogue okay so more eu more democracy promotion is not incompatible with having a pragmatic approach with these big players thank you
0: thank thank you so much uh, sandra for this um uh for for showing us the the interrelationships and the interdependencies between this internal and external aspects and and what came clear i think was that we have this outward <laughs> looking um uh, dimension so um uh, how can the eu be an actor which uh pro- that, that promotes Values, democracy, rule of law, when it is in a to to be cautious in a period where it debates about its own fundamentals and where it tries to uh, develop more resilience in these questions. And on the other hand, um, from outside, you, you also pointed at the uh, at the challenges to yeah, to even engage increasingly in these times with countries which are not completely liberal uh, in order for example to to uh, ensure effective multilateralism so liberal democracies will also have to cooperate with illiberal countries in many and many areas so thank you thank you so much and i think that's the point where we should uh, bring in the uh, audience and uh, questions from the from the audience uh, so far um, there was one directed to me i will save that for the for the end of the debate concerning german uh, german debates but i think at least one of them is also a question directed to all of you so uh, why uh, why germany has been if germany has been so reluctant uh, in supporting deepening of european integration why it has only there uh, has only been lip services i have a an opinion on that but maybe your perception of that of the role of germany in, in this context would be interested. and The second one is, uh, how did um, COVID-19, uh, the restrictions imposed in the context of um, um, pandemics, um, how did they influence the situation in the Member States when it comes to, uh, to democracy, of course, and what were the lessons which were which were learned. I mean, the COVID, the pandemic management went along with, with severe restrictions uh, in, in some fields, which we did not imagine uh, a, a year ago or so in, in a pluralistic um, uh, democracy. Uh, and then uh, I have one um, one hand. I don't see it. Uh, some uh, uh, someone who has risen the hand. Uffe I, I I would like to unmute please I would I like ask Uffe Hütker again I would ask the organizers to to unmute Uffe for the first um, question
5: Yeah hello can you can you hear me Yes Yeah uh Uffe Hudcare from Denmark I'm representing a United Nation Association of Denmark And I would like to thank you all for very great inspiration. I have uh, two comments, and then I have a question for Sandra, Portuguese, about Portuguese presidency. Just uh, a a remark to Valdis, I really enjoyed your comments about no limits to democracy. I think it's a very clear way to say it and support that. And then to Johannes about the conference on the future of Europe. Uh, I I, uh, I understand your view, but I will say I'm I'm just a citizen and I'm looking it in a very simple way that I just look so much for, forward to a dialogue about the future of Europe across the borders, uh, with the organizations, with business, with people, with uh, politicians, with all over. Uh, So, that's just my view on the Conference on the Future of Europe and I have organized an online meeting uh, with people from different nations about this uh, topic. And then to Sandra about the Portuguese presidency and the question is how much can a presidency actually do, for example, to, to move the EU and the world in the right direction for democracy? And I can say, I, I, last week I had a meeting with Portuguese ambassador of Denmark, and I really enjoyed the Portuguese global view. And you know, he was talking about EU-India summit, EU-Africa relation, EU-Mercosur. But what about democracy in all this uh, this global talking? So, of, So my question is just how much can EU presidency do? To move uh, the world in the right direction for democracy. Thank you.
0: We had already uh, signalling of, of of Johannes Polak, <laughs> which is probably very very modest. But maybe maybe Sandra could uh, could begin because the question was directed to her.
4: Thank you very much. Very interesting questions. Uh, I will just uh, start with the first one from the audience. Um, how did the, uh, the COVID-19 restrictions influence the situations in the member states concerning democracy? I have to say that concerning Portugal, internally, uh, there is no discussion about democracy. Of course, there is discussion because of this new party, but it's still quite small in terms of, um, of voters, okay? And it might disappear, as I said, or, or grow. We don't know yet, okay? but the. Uh, as usual, concerning the European Union, the discussion in Portugal is really focused on economics. The, economics, the economic consequences of the COVID-19 uh, restrictions is really at the core of the debate in Portugal. This is what is really worrisome for the Portuguese people. Okay, so we don't have really a discussion on the on the on democratic consequences for Portugal as such. Of course, there is a, a broader discussion uh, on uh, other scales concerning the. Portuguese presidency and how much it can do, actually, uh, to move uh, the EU in the defense of democracy. I I think that um, uh, the new instrument of sanctions, the regime of human rights, uh, is new. Uh, Since 7th December of last year, the EU has now an instrument concerning specifically uh, the breach of uh, human rights and the possibility of sanctioning. Um, It's possible that the first country that is targeted is Russia. So let's see. So it would be a sign uh, and uh, but anyway, uh, the presidencies today, as you know, since the Lisbon Treaty are not as powerful as they used to be. Okay, because they are not that encompassing and concerning external action, the presidencies have lost a lot of uh, their agendas as compared to the pre-Lisbon Treaty uh, situation. Um, And uh, as I mentioned, for Portugal, it's really about um, serving as a bridge keeping the dialogue open and being able to discuss pragmatically specific uh, agendas that can be discussed. For instance, concerning Russia, it's clear that Portugal is ready to to make the focus this semester on climate-related things, such as green energies, for instance. So um, it's not an irrealistic goal, I think. And uh, I think that the pragmatic approach of Portugal, of course, can be criticized, but it cannot do um, everything uh, just in six, semest- uh, in six months. But that still, uh, it can really um, uh, build up on its capacity to breach, to keep the dialogue open. Because without dialogue, anyway, we cannot hope for change uh, uh, towards Russia, China, or even the United States. Thank you.
0: Well, that's, a, that's a rather difficult question, because I think even there where the EU thought to have leverage I.e. in its uh, direct neighbourhoods, for example, uh, in the Eastern Partnership countries or in the even in the enlargement uh, process. So look to Turkey or the Western Balkans. Uh, traditional mechanisms of conditionality, also trying to um, to promote democracy and rule of law, have rather limited um, effects. But I saw Johannes Polak, uh, <laughs> uh, who wants to intervene, please.
3: an intervention, you know. I I don't think you can do a lot uh, to influence democracy in the member states. It's first and foremost a task the member states themselves need to take care of. But, you know, the European Union, and you mentioned the uh, reconstruction package, I mean, this is of course extremely, extremely important that we have more alignment in the economic development. Of, of the member states. So far, we still have too much of a difference uh, when it comes to the income disparities and so on and so forth. But the there was a question about Germany, you know, Germany, uh, why does it not invest more into the deepening of the European Union? I think the answer is relatively simple because there's also a limit to what the German citizens would want to see. There is, and we know that from all the surveys Eurobarometer and so on, they would like to see more unity in foreign policy and so so on, but the the idea to have a a, a European finance minister or whatever, you know, that was sometimes floated, is, Is I think we are a couple of steps ahead and this might take a few more years. There was a very interesting question about how the pandemic influenced the democracy in the in the member states and I would even enlarge and say how did it influence the relationship between the member states that is a brilliant book uh, right now uh, in print. Uh, it, it's a one of the, the series uh, on views from the capitals edited by me and two colleagues uh, and there is a, excellent chapters I have to say from each and every member state. I mean for, for, for Latvia it was of course Carly's and Alexander Bulkovska um, wrote this, where you see how, and this is, this is just like taking the temperature of a patient, it's, it's not a long-term trend, but what you see is how quickly um, the, this, this common undertaking, the joint objectives, erode in such an unprecedented crisis. Uh, how thin the blanket of civilization is when it really is about protection of citizens, when you have these horrible pictures from Northern Italy and so on and so forth, you know. And, And this book really tries to see what happened during this crisis to the idea of solidarity amongst member states of the European Union, and this is rather a sobering picture uh, that emerged. There was the Baltic bubble, for instance, there was a regional solidarity also with the Scandinavians and so on. There were, there were totally selfish and egoistic movements in uh, moves by the French government, but also by the German government, and so on and so forth. So what we see right now is that those achievements, free travel and others, you know, have have no, are very quickly eroding. Yeah, instead of being used for a joint tackling of the crisis and you can see that within the European Union but also within federally organized member states of the European Union thank you
0: yeah thank you so much and and uh, now maybe maybe uh, president um, Sattlers and and, and and what what Johannes Polak also alluded to I, I would I mean, even go a step a step further and if, if you look a little bit to the to the future, um, I mean, uh, talking about the impact of um, of the of the crisis now and of the pandemic, I mean, we live in a period where we have a sort where the 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 natural laws of finance and economy in a way don't apply for the moment, but they will come back. So I think there will be a negative economic fallout in most member states. There are discussions about uh, cuts in budgets, consolidation. Uh, cuts off of welfare programs, um, maybe uh, growing unemployment rates, and so on and so forth. So what I what I want to, to ask is, isn't there a, a strong interconnection between the promise of um, wealth for all and more palpable, a strong and stable middle class and the resilience of democracy? Because I mean, if you look to the United States, one of the core Drivers for the success of Donald Trump was, of course, the, the deplorable state of the of the middle class, yeah, which since two or three decades uh, is not in this beneficial situation of the golden era, of the of the post-war of the post-war time. So, what happens if there will be growing economic problems in the next years? What does this mean for for democracy, President Zatlas.
2: This is a very good question, and nobody knows the exact answer uh, because uh, we live in a, in a time of uncertainty and uh, we cannot predict about one month, two months uh, in the future, not more. But uh, I would emphasize uh, three threats to the democracies. The first one is cons- cancellation culture, and uh, people are afraid to, to define what is the cancellation culture. I will be brave enough to say this is xenophobic arrogance of uh, of uh, intellectual people, by the way. And uh, uh, what we can do with that? And it's, it's a real threat. Uh, we should uh, uh, stand for, very strongly stand for freedom of, of speech and respect the uh, difference of opinions, which which compete it not exclude each other the second point the second threat is uh, the overuse of political correctness and uh, this leads to double standards and we were talking in a different aspects uh, in this uh, uh, discussion about the double standards and not delivering the promises is, is, is a big problem so the the out of that is speak truth truth is is a very very effective instrument And the third one is uh, that the IT companies penetrate democracy. I I like this term, "penetrate democracy. If something penetrates you, uh, you should react. And uh, you should react with a framework of laws. And and, uh, up to now, we have not done enough for that. Uh, Of course, I agree that that the day after the COVID stress test is over uh, will be the toughest moment for all democracies and in, in EU, in, including.
0: Yeah, th- thank you, especially for your um, uh, uh, for pointing out at, at this kind of big tech issue, which I already mentioned earlier. We remember the um, the saying a couple of years ago. I don't know exactly when it was that the European Commission is able to um, show Microsoft at limits, but uh, it's not able to do the same with Gazprom. It appears to me that things are changing now. Kind of, Gazprom has increasingly uh, problems with uh, the regulations of the uh, common uh, energy uh, market, whereas um, the whereas big tech um, and the question of a digital te- digital tax and, and, and other issues um, are not so easy uh, in this battle between politics and, and economy. With that over over to uh yeah santa wants to intervene at very very briefly
4: okay uh, i think it's important and uh following the very very pertinent intervention of President actors about truth truth being a powerful uh, instrument i think that if we look at the action plan for european democracies that has been approved last december i think there is a missing point there of because it's really on the literacy of the audience so how people Uh, uh, read and interpret what is in the social media, social networks. But actually, I think that uh, we are still not addressing the problem of ownership and non-democratic management of the social networks, of Facebook, of Twitter. And this is an issue because we have external interference also in democratic processes in the US and and in the European Union because these uh, uh, social network owners are not uh, accountable yet. OK, so they are, they are still able to control and being manipulated as well by IT technologies um, uh, uh, about what is the truth, what is uh, apparent, what comes to the public. So I think that we have we are here a kind of, of a blind spot that needs to be put in the light of political discussion. And I think we have not tackled this issue enough and it's not visible in the actual action plan that has been adopted last December. That was it.
0: Thank you for that. And now, Chair, Chairwoman Terrouda, I, I, am sure you have a lot of, uh, of comments um, to to add to the questions and also to what the other speakers said, Madam Chairman. Chairwoman, please.
1: Uh, thank you. There is indeed a, a lot to react to, but um, I will, uh, in this situation, uh, choose the things that are most important to me to impart to you. I think um, first in trying to answer the question of how has the COVID restrictions, influence democracy. Um, I think here in Latvia, we've seen um, civil society organizations not happy about the lack of ability to gather and show strength. Um, At the same time, so many of our processes have become uh, online processes, which makes them open and visible to the public. Uh, whether there are all the committee meetings in the parliament now are on online and visible parliamentary sessions even the council of ministers meetings are now open and accessible online so this is uh has been i think a good out uh, side effect of the covid restrictions Um, however uh it is uh, also has a not a very good uh, silver lining because this is all um from the point of view of those watching and learning about how the political process happens, um, they are in a very passive position. They can watch, but they cannot engage. Uh, This is a problem, and it's especially a problem for the ability of journalists uh, to cover the issues and to uncover many issues. Uh, You mentioned the economic consequences of what happens when uh, we come out of the COVID crisis and uh our economies slow down or we have problems i think uh we have a foreshadowing of this already in the discussions in latvia about how we deal with the crisis how much should we be helping and supporting uh, individuals who have become uh, at risk in latvia and how much are we diverting uh money to economic actors that are at risk. Uh, This uh, tension between the two is already palpable. And I think it will become even more so uh, if we experience an economic decline when coming out of the pandemic. Um, This, I think, brings me also to what uh, Johannes referred to, uh, that the cohesion policy of the European Union has um, yet to deliver. And I think this. uh, increases uh, the risks of polarization and the risks of um, the legitimacy of the EU. Uh, As we have in Latvia 30 years on after a renewal of independence, uh, uh, first 15 years of the EU, we're still in many aspects at the bottom of the economic uh, comparisons among the countries. Uh, our levels have improved, but we're still at the bottom. One can see it most, uh, uh, most in the um, direct payments to agriculture. Uh, the gaps are not closing. We are still at the bottom. And I think this uh, creates in the long term um, questions about uh, Are is the cohesion policy, which is one of the big promises of the European Union, is it actually delivering uh, to those members of the EU that have uh, had the most catching up to do? Uh, I also wanted to comment um, on uh, the question uh, of, do we have to protect democracy? Do liberal democracies have to protect um, the preconditions that are necessary for the existence of democracy. And I have to say, I'm I'm very much of the opinion that we do have a responsibility uh, if we want to continue living in a democracy, to protect the parameters and the space for that democracy. This does not mean, um, I believe, a limitation on diversity of opinions. It does not mean uh, limiting the plurality of opinions. But what it does mean is taking the parameters that we have created for democracies in the real world and moving them to be functional in the digital world. Because as I said in my first comments, I think it's important to recognize that most of our political participation and democratic discourse takes place in the digital world now. That would be all for now.
0: Thank you so much, and thank you to all of you, as we have uh, run out of time. I think this was a very uh, inspiring debate, and as in uh, every good debate, uh, the most important thing is uh, not only to have answers, but to to take home good questions. And I think we have many of these these questions. What I think is, what we have witnessed is that the level of um, uh, entropy of the political process (laughs) Is, is still high, um, and I think, um, I would, for, for me, one takeaway we have, uh, in, in spite of the kind of different emphasis we, 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 we heard today, is uh, in the way, as, as, as um, uh, Mrs. Terauda said, I think there is a consensus that we have to protect the political space, but we should not narrow it in order to kind of make democracy more resilient. Thank you very much for, for all of you and for the interesting questions and the inspiring debate. Now we will have a short break, 15 minutes, and at 11.45, the next panel conversation will start. And it is about reanimating the European economy in a climate change aware environment. Thank you and goodbye.